Well, good evening. Thank you for coming out tonight. My name is Will Face, and I'm the youth pastor here. Most of y'all probably know that by now, though. Um, and I have the opportunity to preach God's word with you this evening. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to go ahead and open it up to John chapter 2. We're going to be looking in verses 1 through 12 this evening. In 2016, at the very beginning of 2016, Josh and I went through a series looking at the seven I Am statements of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. Tonight, we want to begin a new series that's going to look at the seven signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John. So uh, the I Am statements are found in John chapter 6 to John chapter 15. And the seven, uh, or the seven statements of Jesus Christ, or the seven signs of Jesus Christ, are found in chapters 2 through 11. Uh, the jo John's gospel centers on the promised Messiah and Son of God, Jesus Christ. His book is focused on the life of Christ, the signs of Christ, and the statements of Christ. And so the purpose of John's book is found in John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, and he states this. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. The purpose statement, as well as the seven signs that we're going to look at tonight and the, over the next remaining months, are twofold. First, John's uh, gospel has an instructional purpose. His goal is to teach us about Christ. But secondly, there's also this evangelistic and missional purpose, calling each of us to believe in Jesus Christ. And so the purpose statement of, of John's gospel in chapter 20 has not changed, and this series is the same as well, that we would look at these signs recorded in the first half of this book and that we would believe in Jesus Christ, that by believing we would have life in his name. And so John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, begin Jesus' public ministry on earth. John 2 records for us the beginning of these seven signs. And so these chapters from chapter 2 to chapter 11 are often called the book of signs because in them Jesus begins to reveal his glory, something that John refers to in John chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so as we study this first sign tonight and as we continue this series over the months to come, my desire is that we would see the glory of the Son of God and believe in him, that we would grow deeper in our relationship with him, understanding that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God. With that in mind, let's open it up in prayer this morning or this evening. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity we have once again to come before you and to study your word. God, we're thankful for the gospel of John. God, that it has not only an instructional purpose, but an evangelistic purpose to call us to believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. God, tonight as we look at this first sign, God, we pray that you will be glorified, that we will see the glory of your Son through what he did through this miracle. God, we pray that you will bless the preaching of your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Before Babs and I moved back to First or to First Baptist, we lived in Wake Forest, North Carolina, for about three years. 
And we would often drive from Wake Forest to Dublin to visit with family. And if you've ever driven uh, from Dublin to Wake Forest, the, the fastest way to go is from Dublin. You would go up to Augusta. Once you take Augusta, you would hit I-20 and head up to Columbia. And then once you hit Columbia in South Carolina, you would take I-95 up towards Raleigh or up to Fayetteville and then I-40 up to Raleigh and then Wake Forest. And if you've ever taken I-95 in South Carolina to North Carolina, you would have seen signs for a place called South of the Border. Now, Babs and I had never really taken this trip until we visited uh, Wake Forest where I was going to seminary. And so as you drive closer to, to the border of South Carolina and North Carolina, getting close to Dillon, South Carolina, you begin to see sign after sign after sign for this supposedly amazing place called South of the Border. Now, I'm seeing some smiles in the congregation, so many of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. But as we were driving to Wake Forest, we were amazed at the amount of signs that south of the border had. These large, witty, colorful signs that were letting you know that you were getting closer uh, to this tourist attraction. And so once you finally get to south of the border, which is south of North Carolina and on the edge of South Carolina and North Carolina, you are met with this 350-acre site that has miniature golf courses and truck stops and restaurants and motels and souvenir shops and campgrounds and gas stations. Now, unfortunately, if you've ever driven by south of the border, have been there in recent years, it's not in its prime anymore. But back in the day when it was first built, first built in around 1949-1950, it was a huge tourist attraction. And the point of these signs and these billboards was to let you know that you were getting to something great, that something up ahead was going to get your attention, that there was something that was amazing that you were about to encounter. And so as large and as witty as the signs are, and some of y'all are probably familiar with some of those signs that they have, the signs are not the attraction. Instead, they are pointing you to something that you are about to reach. And so in a similar way, Jesus' signs in the Gospel or John are meant to reveal to us that something great is coming up ahead. Now, thankfully, Jesus' signs don't disappoint us like south of the border does, but they are pointing us to something which is Jesus Christ and his glory. They are road marks that are moving us closer and closer to, to who he is and understanding him as Messiah and King. And so each of these signs in John's gospel give us a glimpse of his glory. They are not an end in themselves, but instead they are meant to reveal to us this promised Messiah that the Israelites were supposed to be looking for. And as they reveal himself, they're calling us to believe in him. They're calling us to give to, to believe in him and then to gain eternal life. And so in the Gospel of John, as we look at tonight, we're going to see that these signs that Jesus is performing are meant to point us to something greater, that they are a revelation of his glory, that they are just a glimpse of the glory that is about to take place through Jesus on the cross. They are more than just a wonder. They're more than just powerful acts, but they're acts that point us to the reality of who Jesus really is the Messiah, the Son of God, the coming King. With these, in mind, with these things in mind, let's look at John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. John writes, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus, was also, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. 
Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. This evening, we're going to divide the text into three main ideas uh, for each section that we look at. And then as we examine those main ideas, I'm going to give you an application point for each of those main sections. The first main idea is this, found in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, that Jesus exemplifies true obedience. Jesus exemplifies true obedience. And as we look at this text this evening, we're going to find out that the application of this is that Jesus calls us to true obedience as well. So John tells us at the beginning of this verse, he says, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. So we see here this continuation of a narrated event that has already taken place in John chapter 1. Jesus calls Nathanael, and then we find this location of the event as well taking place in John 2. He says they were at a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now John chapter 21 verse 2 tells us that Nathanael was from Cana in Galilee. John gives us here the time and the place of this event to remind us that these are actual events that are taking place between Jesus and his disciples. These are signs that actually happened that he actually saw. And so Jesus and his mother and his disciples are invited to this wedding, and they see that the wine runs out. Now Mary then has this exchange with Jesus in regards to a need for more wine. For a wedding at this time, the celebration could last as long as a week, and so the financial responsibility lied with the groom. And so for the supplies to run out, especially for the wine, it would have been an embarrassment to the groom and his family. And so Mary, for some reason, has knowledge of this problem, whether she uh, is a close friend of the family or a relative, and she comes to Jesus seeking for him to solve it. She sees that there's a need, and she comes to him to solve that need. And so it's likely that Mary has come used to, uh, or she's learned to rely on Jesus' resourcefulness. And so what may seem as a surprise to us, Jesus responds with this statement. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, in our culture, the address as woman would likely be a sign of disrespect or an impersonal put-down. None of us go around to our wives and say, woman, it would be disgraceful. But in this context, in the first century Judaism, this would have been a polite way to address her. Jesus is not uh, rejecting his mother in a negative way. He's just saying, why are you getting me involved in this matter? Jesus' mother appears twice in the Gospel of John, the first being here at this wedding at Cana, and the second at the cross in chapter 19, verse 25 to 27. And this is what John records in chapter 19. He says, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. And so Jesus' response to his mother in John 2 is not, a, is not a sign of disrespect. Instead, he is revealing to us that he is no longer under her supervision. Instead, he must do the will of his heavenly Father. And so we see that Jesus is exemplifying true obedience. He's declaring at the beginning of his public ministry, and this first sign that he's about to perform, that he is free from any kind of human advice or agenda. Any advice or agenda that would keep him from fulfilling his purpose on earth. And so we know his purpose in coming is to do the Father's will. And so as, as, as he enters into this purpose, even his family relationships were subordinate to his divine mission. He's a picture of one who has absolute commitment to the one who has sent him. And so he's not directed by relational pressures or self-serving goals or even fear of hostility. Instead, his focus was upon his hour. This hour refers to the time of his crucifixion, the time in which his saving work is accomplished by his atoning death. And so Jesus lives on this timetable that was marked out for him by the Father. He exemplifies for us radical allegiance to God's will above his mother's will. This obedience and allegiance would precede all other human attachments and affections. And so this brings us to our first application of the text as well. Not only does Jesus exemplify true obedience, but Jesus calls us to true obedience to the Father as well. We are called as believers to be a part or to be about the Father's will, to keep his purposes and his plans at the forefront of our thoughts and actions. So much that even our own earthly relationships and goals are directed by a focus to glorify him. That we would leverage all relationships in light of the gospel. Realizing that our life here on earth is a gift and that we too are called to be about the Father's will. Sharing our faith and looking for ways to show others radical obedience and allegiance to Christ. And so first we see that Jesus exemplifies true obedience Secondly, Jesus meets our needs. And out of that, Jesus calls us to rely on him for our needs. Look back at verse 5. It says, His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And so we pick up in verse 5, seeing that Mary's faith stands strong as she trusts Jesus to do what is right. She's willing to allow him to do whatever he pleased. And so she comes to him realizing that he can do whatever is necessary in the situation. And she gives us an example to follow. She doesn't look to herself to solve the problem. Instead, she looks to Jesus. She exemplifies for us this persevering faith 
Initially, come, she comes to him leaning on her relationship with him as his mother, and in the end of the exchange, she commits the matter to him and believes in him to meet the need as he sees fit. She doesn't know what he will do, but she trusts him either way. Jesus then tells the servants to fill six stone water jars. These jars would have held between 100 and 150 gallons of water. It says that they were made of stone because stone was, not, or stone was more suitable for ceremonial washing. And Jesus tells the servants to draw some of the water out and take it to the master of the feast. And so somewhere between drawing the water out and taking it to the master of the feast, the water is turned to wine. And the master of the feast was likely this chief steward or this head waiter. He would have been in charge of catering or he would have been known as the ruler of the table. And so the master is astonished at the wine and he has no idea where it comes from. And so he calls to the bridegroom and says to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And so what we have in this first sign is an illustration that God's resources are exceedingly abundant. That he not only meets our needs, but he exceeds them. It's interesting to note in Exodus chapter 7, in Moses' first miracle to Pharaoh, he is given a plague that turns water into blood. It's a miracle that is speaking of judgment to the Egyptians. And then in contrast, in John chapter 2, Jesus' first time, sign is turning water into wine, a miracle that speaks of grace. And so Jesus here meets their needs. And in light of that, Jesus calls us to rely on him for our needs. The master of the feast notes that everyone serves the good wine first, and when they have drunk freely, then the poor wine. And in a similar way, the world seems to give us this best picture that sin tempts and tricks us. It gives us the things that promise fulfillment and joy, and yet we actually leave coming up empty. But God's joy and his fulfillment lasts forever. He meets our needs and exceeds those needs with his abundant blessings. The joy he gives us is new and ever satisfying. He calls us to rely on him to meet our needs. And when we do, we get to taste the abundance of his blessings of grace. Jesus meets our needs. Thirdly, we see that Jesus reveals his glory in verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 says this, the first sign or the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. And so what's the result of this miracle? First, it is that Jesus reveals his glory. Secondly, we see that his disciples put their faith in him, that their faith is strengthened and stabilized because of this first sign. Jesus clearly understood his purpose on earth, and that purpose was to glorify the Father. And so this sign reveals this glory, and it gives his disciples a foundation for their faith. And so Jesus' revelation of glory should lead us as well to a belief and faith in him. He calls us to believe in him just as his disciples did. And so when we come to the end of ourselves and we acknowledge our own emptiness, like the wine that ran out at the wedding, Jesus comes in and fills us. But he fills us with something that is far better than we could ever have imagined or experienced. He becomes our own all-encompassing provision. John records in chapter 1, verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
The ceremonial washing that the stone jars were originally intended for was put aside and they were replaced with something new. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, came to fulfill the law and he exchanged that law with a law of grace. He fulfills the necessary ceremonial cleansing with his own blood on the cross. And he would later offer another cup of wine to his disciples. He would state at the Last Supper that this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. John's gospel, as we stated already, that it's not only instructional, but it's also evangelistic. That he's calling us to a response to the signs that Jesus does. And so our response this evening is that we trust and believe in the promise for Messiah, that we rely on him and we believe in who he is, the one who has exemplified true obedience, that puts the Father's will above all other desires in his life, that does not become distracted with other people's requests, but in light of the gospel leads his life in a way that glorifies him. He is the one who meets our needs, who not only meets those needs, but is exceedingly abundant in meeting those needs, that blesses us beyond all measure and comprehension. And he's also the one who reveals his glory. These signs point to something greater. They're pointing to Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the one that the Jews should have been looking forward to. And we see here that this first sign, although it is public, it's more semi-public, that only the two, there's only two set of people that understood where the wine came from. One, the servants, and then secondly, the disciples. And we don't know if the, the servants became followers of Jesus Christ. Most likely, they just saw the sign and wondered at the miracle. But yet, the disciples see this sign, and they begin to place their faith in Jesus Christ. They begin to follow him more deeply having a foundation for their faith, realizing that this is the promised Messiah. And so as we walk through the Gospel of John, as we look through these seven signs over the next few months, the desire is that as we look to, to Christ and as we remember and reflect on those signs, that we too would believe in him, that we would have a relationship that would go deeper in our trust and confidence and reliance on him. Jesus calls us to believe in him, the Son of God, and that by believing that we may have life in his name. Tonight, if you've never experienced that, if you never believed in him, you have an opportunity to respond this evening, to respond in faith and in belief in the Son of God, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer tonight, then this is an opportunity to be reminded of the gift of salvation that we've been given through Jesus Christ, that we believe in him and that belief changes the way that we live our lives that our thoughts and our actions and our desires, all that we do is lined up with his word and his gospel. That we leverage our lives, we leverage our relationships, we leverage our thoughts to glorify him and to reveal his glory to the world. Please join me in prayer. Father, we're thankful that you have revealed your glory through your son. God, that you have given us eyes of faith to see the beautiful display of the gospel. God, we thank you that your son would go to a cross. God, that he would give us the gift of grace, that he would fix our greatest need. And God, not only does he meet those needs, but he calls us to trust him in all things. God, may we place our obedience and trust in you this evening. May we live lives that 
seek to glorify you in all that we do. God, may we be reminded of the magnificent Savior that we serve and the opportunity that we have to be called disciples of your Son. God, may we respond tonight to the message found in the Gospel of John. God, we thank you for the signs that you've given and we thank you for the gift of salvation. And God, may we live in light of that as we leave tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.